What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Hindsightless, the sporadic podcast where I talk about life, role-playing games, or whatever else might be running around inside of my head. But mostly role-playing games, because they let you wear a trout mask and a fun hat. Okay, so today's episode, we got a, a call from Jason about pushing push your luck mechanics and uh i'll talk about i'll talk a little bit about a game i just finished playing and then at the end after i say all my goodbyes so you can listen to the whole episode for an addendum i have a very in-depth uh in-depth spoiler filled thoughts on the immortal knight series by dan davis because that segment i recorded like at time of recording this past Sunday because I read the first five books of the Immortal Night series in a weekend, pretty much a weekend and a day, basically, uh, which are all the ones available on Audible. So I, I really want to talk a lot about it. So, yeah, but again, you don't have to listen to that if you think you're going to read the series um, that's why it's at the very end. I'll say my goodbye and you can just shut off the episode then. But before that, let's talk about some games and take a call for Jason. Okay. So I just finished the first official first session of a game, a campaign of Hyperborea that I just joined uh run by the amazing tj drennan with a bunch of people in it uh there's like nine players in the group i think eight or nine only me and eventually four others showed up so there were five players uh yeah there's a bunch of people and it was that system it's an it's an osr system uh and I'm playing a character named Miradon Grimm. He is a priest of, like, the star gods. Basically, he's really into space. He's kind of older. He's a cook as his day job. He works in a tavern cooking. Uh, and at night, he's a cleric of the star gods. <laughs> and he likes to party. He's from a hedonistic desert-dwelling people. And he's just kind of awesome. And so... Yeah, man, it was it was an interesting session. It was an interesting start to the game. It's funny today on Twitter, this morning on Twitter, the first very first tweet I saw this morning, and I'll still call it Twitter because the other name is stupid. Uh, the first tweet I saw this morning said something to the effect of DMs never ever ever start off. A game by having your characters kidnapped and take away all their stuff. Players hate it. You can never, ever, ever do that. It's the worst thing. Now, I'm being a little hyperbolic there, but that was that was the gist of their text was, it's a bad idea, don't do it. And I posted something to the effect of, well, no, inherently, it's not a bad idea. It's just all about how you, how you deal it out and how the players handle it and how it goes right it all like with most things it comes down to the table and the person running the game it's not an inherently bad idea and so you know i was like "Eh, okay there's that you know those standards where people are saying don't do this thing this thing is the word never split the party never capture your players all that kind of stuff right it's just one of those and so how do we how do we start off this adventure by being (laughs) kidnapped 
we waking up with no memory of what happened, buried alive basically in this weird little tunnel that we all of our stuff has been stolen and we have no idea what happened and that's how we started it off the adventure and I was like, see, it's not an inherently bad idea. It's all about how it goes at the table and there were a bunch of laughs. It was <laughs> those dudes that I played with were fun, man. It was a good, it was a good time. So yeah, that was the Hyperborea game. It just goes to show that whenever somebody says don't do a thing, it's terrible. You should probably do that thing. <laughs> you should probably do that thing and not listen to anybody. All right, but now let's take a call or maybe two from Jason. Hey, Drew. Jason here, just listening to your latest, and you're you're right. You, you know that thing with I, I don't like the push mechanic in Cthulhu Seventh Edition, and you know for pulp Cthulhu maybe, but if you're trying to play a horror game, I, I don't think that kind of thing's appropriate anyway. But as far as the ability you talked about with Haven making the reroll, I would much rather that just be a buff to the armor class, the people that are adjacent to her, right? And, or something like that, to be honest. Because I do think, you know, you roll the die, something happens, and then we have to rewind. No, that didn't happen. I, you know, I think that makes the anticlimactic. I, I think it takes away from the game, for me. Um, like I say, if it works for other people, that's cool. And it's not something that's going to cause me to stop playing games by any means. But, just kind of how I feel about it. So, anyhow, keep up the great work, and I will talk to you soon. Yeah, dude, and that's that's totally cool, man. Like, I, I look at it, especially with the mythic stuff that some of you guys can do enforcing rerolls. To me, that fits the fiction, because you're having the gods, basically, these powers granted you from the gods they can warp reality um they're that powerful you know and that for me that fits especially with this campaign um and then for i don't really think of it for seventh edition the way they describe it it's not it's not that you're re-rolling the same action and seeing if it works this time it, it says that you have to describe what you're doing differently. You're doing a different thing. So like the examples that I've heard, one of them is you're, you're climbing out a window and you fail your climb check. So instead of falling immediately, you can push your luck to try and grab onto the ledge before you totally plummet to the ground. And if you miss, you fall. If you make it, you make it. And so to me, it's almost like it's a... A saving throw in a certain sense it's not re-rolling the same exact action you're doing something different that's how you get a pushed roll you can't just say like I picked the lock harder in order to push it you have to talk about what you're doing differently it might even be a different skill altogether so yeah you know it, it's different strokes for different folks right and that's the beauty of these games. That's the beauty of these, this hobby, man. Like, <laughs> that Hyperborea game. Um, a question about a random table for hats came up. Is, is there a random table for hats? We need some hats. <laughs> Looked it up. Hobbs found a D100 list. D100 
5100 hats. <laughs> and it's just awesome, right? That's just, this hobby kicks ass. Uh, there's so many weird, cool, creative, fun people in the hobby that it's, you know, it's why we've all been in this hobby for so long, because it's awesome. So yeah, that's it. Uh, I'm going to get out of here on that note. Um, thank you, Jason, for that call. That was awesome. So this is the end of the episode, unless you want to hear me talk about the Immortal Night Chronicles by Dan Davis, which is historical fiction meets vampires, kind of Anne Rice style vampires almost. It's awesome. <laughs> so yeah, if you don't want to hear that, no worries. That's the entire rest of the show. There won't be any, 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 anything else. Uh, so I'm going to say my goodbyes here. Everybody, take care of yourselves. Take care of somebody else. Until next time. Peace out. So in the last like three days, I've read the first five books in the van in the Immortal Night series by Dan Davis. Unfortunately, those are the only ones available on Audible. Um, they have listed all the rest of his books in this series, but the only ones that they have available right now are the first five. There are, from what I can tell, eight books in the whole series, but in between some of the books, there are uh, novellas that, according to the author, are supposed to be read in conjunction with the rest of the stories, but none of those are available. So there's one between book three and book four, which they call book 3.5, and uh, there's one between book six and book seven, and between book seven and book eight, I believe. And none of those are available. And unfortunately, book six of the series isn't available because that's the one with Vlad Tepes, Vlad Dracul. And I, oh, I want that one so bad. <laughs> I'm going to, like I said in the intro, I'm going to get into some spoilers here. So if you think you're ever going to read the series, stop listening. I've already said all my goodbyes. I'm going to end after this. Um, but yeah. This is a very, very interesting series. At the end of book three, well, at the end of book two, I was a little annoyed because it basically ends in the exact same fashion that book one ends. As I mentioned when I first talked about this series, uh, it takes place set in the actual historical past with some fictional embellishments and the author puts these two vampire brothers Richard of Ashbury who's the the main character and William who is basically the big bad guy pits them against each other throughout history uh the book starts back during the time of I believe Richard Lionheart set around you know 1100 1200ish Around there, book one ends with Richard almost being able to kill his brother, but his brother being gets away, and Richard can't stop him from getting away. And it's like, oh man, that was great. Book two ends with Richard's bro Richard almost killing his brother, but his brother getting away, and Richard not being able to stop his brother from getting away. And I was just like, okay, man, is this going to be... The whole series is just going to happen every time. All right. And then as I'm getting into book three, I'm like, yeah, 
it's going to happen again. And I didn't mention when I first talked about these books, these books are written from a first person perspective from Richard of Ashbury. And they're basically, it's like his memoirs, more or less. He's retelling the stories of his past. So during the books, he intentionally and obviously foreshadows things to come by saying things like, and that will be the last time I ever lay with my wife in that fashion. So he's doing that in book three because in the third book, or at the end of the second book, he ends up turning this woman he's in love with into a vampire to save her life. Because if you're dying and then you drink vampire blood, you become like a vampire. Except you're not as strong as the vampire that made you. And you have to drink blood every couple days or you'll go crazy and lose your mind. Unlike regular vampires who don't need to do that. Um, you're still not affected by the sun or anything. Though we start seeing the mythology of vampires build. Because as these second generation vampires. Because William the bad guy is making second generation vampires. A, a lot of them. And as those second generation vampires themselves make other vampires those vampires become super dependent on blood they become very susceptible to sunlight they can't really go out in the sunlight they got to wear cloaks and everything so we start to see the author build up kind of the standard model of what we think of generally when we think of vampires in fiction uh so i that's really cool that's a really cool aspect like this guy dan davis he's a smart guy but you know as i'm reading the third book he uh the character richard starts talking about how his wife and now at this point he's made a couple other people vampires to help him fight his evil brother and their the third book is set uh, during the Mongol invasion of 1216, I think. Uh, and that's when the Mongols invaded Baghdad. That's sort of the culmination of the third books is the Mongol invasion of Baghdad. The good guys are there to try. The evil brother is helping the Mongols. He's, he's next to the Khan, uh, whose name I forget right now because it's a, a hard name to say. Wulagile? Something that's that's terrible. That's bad. That's not even close. But anyway, so towards the end of the third book, Richard of Ashbury is talking about how he's not going to have his wife anymore and he's going to lose his wife, Eva. And through book two and book three, we're we're seeing Eva. She's a badass. She's a strong woman. She's loving. She's smart. She's, she's great, right? Like she's a really good foil to Richard and like they bounce off of each other really well. And it's like, okay, so are you just going to kill her off screen? And that's going to be it. Cause that's sort of what he's hinting at. And Richard throughout these books makes really terrible decisions where he'll just leave his friends for really bad reasons, mostly because it helps the story along. It's good for drama when he does these things, not because they're necessarily decisions that would be good to make. But so Richard, basically at the end of the third book, he sees his brother down this long street. He charges off after his brother, even though his friends are getting swarmed by all these mongrel soldiers 
and uh, Richard is chasing his brother. They're chasing down the street, and then all of a sudden, boom, this portcullis comes down out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. It's not set up at all. They never talk about these gates. They never talk about the portcullises coming up and down. Just boom, all of a sudden, Richard, you can't catch your brother. Your brother got away again. And I was just like, oh, man. So not only are you doing this trope again of the bad guy always getting away at the end of the story after the good guy gets super close and then gets his ass kicked, then rebounds, but gets super close but can't get him. Not only are you doing that, you're going to kill off his wife just because I don't know why. Like, it, it just felt really dumb and I was really annoyed with it because at that point I had like 45 minutes left in the book. And so I was like, oh, okay. So I stopped reading for a minute. Then I finished it and I was pleasantly surprised. He did not kill off Eva. And I was like, whoa, really? What the hell? He, he does a thing that I don't rarely see. The author does a thing with his characters that I don't rarely see a lot. They have a an adult conversation about how Eva's not getting enough out of the relationship, not getting what she wants anymore. And they're not good for each other and that they should split up and still be friends. And Richard says, yeah, okay. And it's amazing. <laughs> you never see that in fiction. It's either th there's like a crazy blow up fight and then they hate each other and become enemies or anything else. But you never see like, Especially led by the woman. I, I was very impressed with how much agency Dan uh, Dan Davis gave Eva in this situation. It was her decision based on her own thoughts and feelings and what was going on in the world. At that point, they had been together for 50 years. And she's like, hey, you know, let's not pretend we're still quote unquote married we've been married for a human lifetime together. Let's go do something else now. And Richard was like, cool, let's do that. And in the next previous, in the following books, they're still friends and still working together. They're just, you know, they're not quote unquote together anymore. They're not a couple anymore, but it's just really refreshing to see. And I was like, way to go, Dan Davis. Like you annoy me with the trope of the brother always getting away uh, but I really like what you did here. <laughs> and so, yeah, then I read the fifth book, which the fifth book's all right. It takes place during the, uh, English invasion of France, which that that's cool. Like I said, these books are full of like actual historical facts that you can look up mixed in with obviously some historical fiction embellishments in, in a really fun, engaging way. And so, I was way less annoyed at the end of book three than I thought I would be, than I was at 45 minutes ago. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to keep reading this series. I really didn't know. But when he did that with their, with Eva and Richard's relationship, I was like, okay, all right, let, let, let's giddy up. Let's try this again. Um, book five at, so at the end of book four, another thing is that Richard, or William, the bad guy, makes Richard a promise that he's not going to come back into Europe, into Christendom, for like 200 years. And that he doesn't want Richard to chase him. 
And it's like, why are you doing that? Like William saves Richard's life. Um, and there's other stuff that's going on in here anyway. So the fifth book doesn't deal with Richard and his brother. It deals with Richard's organization that he's setting up of good guy, quote unquote, good guy vampires, um, building, getting their network set up and they're in France now. And they know there are a couple, uh, vampires that William made that are French noble people and they got to fight the Black Knight and the Black Knight is a vampire. Nobody knows who the Black Knight is. So that's book five. You don't deal with Richard's brother getting away. So book five was just a fun kind of adventure romp. Or sorry, book f- that was book four. And then book five, <laughs> book five deals with Joan of Arc. And it's like, huh. Okay, so what are you going to do here with Joan? Um, At first, they're setting it up where Joan is just a pawn of one of the vampires. It's like, okay, so you're just, yeah, you're making Joan of Arc just a pawn. So it's not her. It's she didn't have any agency in this. And then by the end of the book, because I said at the beginning, they're big spoil. At the end of the book, you find out, no, the whole time Joan of Arc was a vampire. (laughs) So she did have agency. She was just an evil, evil creature who fed on children to become more powerful and led the armies of France because she was a sweet ass vampire who was murdering a bunch of kids. And it's like, is that better? (laughs) But I thought it was I thought it was interesting. Um, Yeah. So, again, I've read all the books that are available in the series on Audible. Uh, Hopefully they'll get book six soon. I have no idea when. There's a little button that says Audible will say, we don't have this book. Why not? And you click the link and it's like, there are many reasons why Audible might not have it. And that's pretty much all it says. You're like, okay, good. Thank you. That was helpful. (laughs) Yeah, man. So that's my spoiler filled uh, summary of the things, the big things that happen in the Immortal Night series by Dan Davis. I like it. I'll read the rest of them if they're made available on, on Audible. And yeah, that's it. I'm done. See you in the next episode if you're still here.